It's long been said that children are our most valuable resource. Children are our future. And today's children are tomorrow's leaders. All true statements. But children are also among our most vulnerable populations. Data gathered from back in 2019 showed that over 5,600 North Carolina children were found to be victims of neglect, physical, or sexual abuse. The good news is there is a plethora of agencies and dedicated people working diligently to make that number a downward trend and to provide resources for child victims. One of those people is our guest for podcast episodes this entire month as April is dedicated Child Advocacy Month. Whitney Bellish is the Child Abuse Resource Prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. In that capacity, she serves as a resource to assist prosecutors across the state by providing training in the prosecution of cases involving abuses of children. She serves as a resource for law enforcement, social service workers, and other allied professionals. Quentin, um, turn around, I was driving down Quentin, I'm turning around to see if I can find him again. This is at Clover, subject to 1074, Whitney, once again, I want to thank you for your time. The first two episodes were just magnificent from uh, an information standpoint. And today, as we begin to talk about yet another topic of child abuse, neglect, maltreatment, uh, I think this episode, too, is going to lend itself to law enforcement gaining some new information from the reporting standpoint. So once again, thanks and welcome back to our podcast. Happy to be here. So uh, I just kind of want to go right to it. When we talk about reporting child abuse in North Carolina, what are those specific requirements? What does a law enforcement guy or uh, a civilian, what do they need to know when it comes to the reporting process? Well, in North Carolina, everybody, every adult is a mandated reporter. So you may have seen shows on television and heard tell of like, well, you're a mandated reporter, so you have to call this in if you see it or hear about it. Well, in North Carolina, that's everybody. There is no one that is um, that is excluded from that mandatory reporting requirement. We are, do have some exclusions about how you may find out about the child abuse, so I'll talk about those in a little bit. But really the main thing to know is that whether you're a civilian, whether you're a law enforcement officer, whether you're a teacher, no matter who you may be, if you suspect that a child is being abused or neglected, you are required by law to report that either to the Department of Social Services or to law enforcement or both. And so those requirements have expanded somewhat recently, but the reporting to uh, the Department of Social Services has been there for a long time and continues to be there. And the goal of that is that we don't want anyone to be able to take a backseat to protecting children. We don't want anyone to say, well, you know, I wasn't 100% sure that there was abuse going on or, you know, I'm not a mandated reporter. I'm not required by law. And I just really didn't want to get involved and stick my nose in it. North Carolina requires that by law you do stick your nose into it if you have cause to suspect that a child is being abused or neglected. And we've put that on the books by law. So I know there's somebody sitting there going, but what happens if you don't? So I'm asking that question. What happens if you don't? 
Sure. So if there is evidence that you knew or should have known that there was abuse going on and you did not report it to the proper authorities, then you can be charged with a class one misdemeanor. So that is kind of the punishment that happens if someone, if we find out that someone knew about child abuse and didn't report it. So let me break that down one more time. I assume there are no exclusions that if a dad abused a child and a mom saw it and she didn't report it, or if a girlfriend assaulted a child and a boyfriend saw it and didn't report it, are they under that umbrella? They are. In fact, um, everyone is under that umbrella, even people who are normally protected by some sort of privilege. So husband-wife privilege does not apply. And let me break it down a little bit further just to be clear. There's two types of reporting requirements in North Carolina. As I mentioned, there's a reporting requirement to DSS, and that is that applies to everyone. And it says that if you have uh, anyone that has cause to suspect that child abuse ne or neglect is occurring is required to report it to the Department of Social Services. And that excludes any sort of privilege that you can imagine except for one. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But that means husband and wife privilege is not recognized. Doctor-patient privilege. This is why a lot of reporters are medical professionals because a child comes in to see them. Maybe it's for the abuse-related injury. Maybe it's for some other condition or just even a well check for a child. Uh, and they notice that there are signs of abuse or neglect. Then they are required to report it doesn't matter if there's a doctor-patient privilege going on. It also doesn't recognize attorney-client privilege, uh, except in one situation, and that is if the attorney is representing the person in abuse, neglect, or dependency hearing, like a DSS hearing, and they find out about the abuse of a child through that representation, then they do not have to report it. But otherwise, let's say that an attorney is representing a defendant in a drug case. And through that representation, they find out that this defendant is also abusing the child that's in their home. The attorney would still be required by law to report that abuse, even though it would be a violation of attorney-client privilege in any other scenario. Because what the legislature has done through these reporting requirements is to recognize that protecting children from abuse is of the utmost importance. And we're going to put that above almost any other recognition or protection that we normally uh, have. And so that means that any of these privileges that would normally keep people quiet about abused children or neglected children, we're going to do away with those and require everyone to report that abuse. And so as I said, there's two types of reporting requirements. So there's that one to DSS that I already mentioned. But about two years ago, um, the legislature passed another child abuse reporting requirement, and that was a reporting requirement to law enforcement. And so the reason for that, I believe, is that the reports that were being made to DSS would obviously only be able, DSS can only do something if they are statutorily allowed to do that. So in other words, if a report was made to DSS, and let's say the report was about, you know, I think that my coach is molesting one of my teammates. Well, if that was reported to DSS, then DSS couldn't do anything about that. They would forward that report along to law enforcement, but they themselves could not investigate it because the coach is not a caretaker of the child. And so therefore, it would not fall under DSS's mandate of cases that they could investigate. So we created the secondary 
reporting requirement, the legislature did, that cases get reported to law enforcement. And so those cases are anyone who is abusing a person under the age of 18, sexual abuse or physical abuse, and that includes the crime of misdemeanor child abuse, which includes the investigation of anyone who creates a substantial risk of physical injury to a child. So there's not even a requirement that the child be injured in any way. It is just if something has happened that would create a substantial risk of injury to the child. So this is a pretty broad category of offenses that have to be reported to law enforcement. And so sometimes that means that a mandated reporter, an adult that knows or suspects that there's child abuse going on, may have to report that abuse to both the Department of Social Services and to law enforcement. So I want to expand your answer out just a little bit more so that we really drive home this point with the law enforcement folks who are listening. What exactly has to be reported? Kind of talk about the the how, the when, and the why, because I know there's just, there's so much information out there when it comes to child abuse and neglect and maltreatment. And it, on a good day, for a guy like me, is confusing. So from an investigative standpoint, and, and from a prosecution standpoint, let's talk about that for just a moment as to those things that, that must be reported. So basically the easy way to think about it with both reports to DSS and reports to law enforcement are really going to be anything, any kind of abuse to someone under the age of 18 that results in some sort of injury or the risk of injury. And by injury, I mean also sexual abuse. So anything that could be charged as a sex crime against a child, anything that could be charged as an ab- a physical abuse crime against a child, or anything that could be charged as a misdemeanor child abuse charge, so the risk of injury to a child, it's going to be something that has to be reported. And basically how that report happens is that the reporter contacts either DSS, the local DSS in the county where the child is or where the child lives, they make a report and they give as much information as they know. Now, considering that this reporting requirement applies to civilians, I think we can all understand that some of these reports are going to be better than others. Uh, Law enforcement is probably going to make a very thorough report, hopefully, to DSS about what they know, what they've seen, who's involved, where they are, where they live, what their relationship is to the child. Uh, that sort of thing. A civilian may just call and say, you know, I don't really know their name, but the people who live next to me at, you know, this house, at this address, you know, the little boy seems to always have a bunch of bruises around his neck and he seems really fearful of the dad, but I don't know their name. And that's going to be pretty much the report that they get. And so they're going to take whatever they get. The statutes do list out exactly what needs they want to be in the report but again that's sort of pie in the sky so the statutes for the dss reporting requirement are 7b-301 and the statute for the law enforcement reporting requirement is 14-318.6 and so if you're interested in knowing exactly all the things that it lists out about what needs to be reported and what the report needs to say then that's a great place to start looking it's got all those specifics But generally, you know, what we want to make sure is that these cases are being reported and they're being reported as thoroughly as they possibly can be and to the authorities who can actually do something about them. And that's the most important thing. I will say that the reporting requirement to law enforcement, it does recognize more privilege 
than the DSS reporting requirement does. Remember, I said that the DSS reporting requirement doesn't really recognize most attorney-client privileges, doesn't recognize doctor-patient, doesn't recognize husband and wife privilege, anything like that. So the reporting requirement to law enforcement, it does recognize some of those privileges, like attorney-client privilege specifically, um, psychologist and patient privilege. Those sorts of things are recognized, and so they somebody might be in a position to report to uh, Department of Social Services, but not to law enforcement in those situations. But it doesn't recognize some other important privileges, namely husband or wife and doctor-patient. And so those are still going to be reported to law enforcement as well. So law enforcement may see an uptick in reports to them uh, that they didn't see before this new law had passed. Because right now, our most common reporters, I think last time I saw a breakdown, close to 20% of all child abuse reports came from teachers, and another 20% came from law enforcement. So our two biggest reporters are teachers, educational professionals, law enforcement, and medical professionals. Those are the people who are in a position to see that a child has been abused, potentially been abused or neglected. And so those are the people who are reporting it most often. And we want those reports, again, to be as thorough as possible and then allow for law enforcement or DSS to follow up as necessary. Well, in our second episode, we spent a lot of time talking about what law enforcement officers, uh, and let's, let's call the first responders on the scene, those guys who get there first, not necessarily the criminal investigators who do the follow-up and the supplements. And we talked about things to be on the lookout for. You mentioned the bruising, scars, things that pop up in places where they ordinarily would not be. And that lends us to this very difficult question. In cases of sexual abuse, where the evidence really somewhat does not speak for itself because it can't obviously be seen, let's have a little discussion about how law enforcement reacts to those cases. And we sometimes know that those cases could have actually been perpetrated years before. So a kid who's 12 years old goes to the school guidance counselor and says, when I was five or six, mommy was dating this guy and this is what he did, or whatever that scenario may be. Talk about that and how law enforcement handles those cases so that they're, they're best prosecuted. So cases of sexual abuse, like you said, can be really difficult because we don't often have outward signs of sexual abuse. Sometimes it goes hand in hand with physical abuse. And so we might have signs of physical abuse and then dig down a little bit into that and find that there's also some sexual abuse going on. But yeah, a lot of times there isn't any outward sign of sexual abuse. Sometimes we do see it in behavior. So there's a lot of times when a child will begin acting out, their grades will drop for an unknown reason. They'll stop being interested in sports or hobbies that they used to be interested in. So there are some outward signs in behavior and emotions that can be a, a sign of potential sexual abuse. And we definitely want to be on the lookout for those. And those are definitely things that need to be reported if we suspect them of happening. Um, also, you know, suddenly dropping out of one sport or seeming suddenly uncomfortable with a figure in there, an authority figure in their life, a coach or a minister or a teacher that they used to be close to and spend time with and suddenly they're not interested in being around them or seem uncomfortable around them. 
don't want to go around them or maybe a family member that they don't want to go around. Those are things that we should definitely be paying attention to if it's happening to someone in our life or we hear about it, we notice it. You know, a lot of times law enforcement is involved in their community in more ways than just their job. And so, you know, there are little league coaches or they're uh, help out at their church. And so those are also things that we should be looking for just in our day-to-day lives as we go through them. Signs of kids that are in our life or that we interact with that are suddenly acting in a way that is not normal for them. We should we should be thinking about what may be going on uh, and potentially on alert for there being sexual abuse. Normally what we get with sexual abuse is that the child is going to disclose to someone. Um, and it may not be a child. Like you said, sometimes this happens years or even decades down the road. One thing that's worth mentioning is that the reporting requirement to law enforcement is only concerned with the age of the child at the time the abuse occurred. So if someone reports to a friend, hey, you know, 20 years ago, my stepfather was sexually abusive to me, technically that still falls under the mandated reporting requirement to law enforcement because that person was under the age of 18 when the abuse occurred and it is sexual abuse, then that is going to fall under a mandated reporting requirement to law enforcement, even though it happened 20 years ago. And one of the reasons for that, one of the reasons that we don't just kind of say, well, that happened a long time ago, is that we know that if these uh, perpetrators are able to get away with it, then they will potentially continue to do it. And so even though this person might not be a child anymore, there may be another child that interacts with that stepfather now, maybe a grandchild or a great-grandchild. And so we want to make sure that we're speaking up even when the abuse has happened a long time ago so that we can potentially protect children in the future from being a part of that abuse. So it's extremely important that we pay just as much attention to signs and symptoms of sexual abuse and that we listen to children when they disclose and even adults when they disclose this kind of abuse because it is something that happens repeatedly and it is something that can cause just as much damage as those physical signs and symptoms and scars that we talked about with physical abuse. Well, I've got one more question because our time is winding down, but this certainly doesn't happen every day, but it does happen. And I'll apologize up front if I'm putting you on the spot in asking. So uh, more and more families have become transient. We're living in Virginia one day and we moved to North Carolina and we stay in North Carolina for a couple of years, and then we move to Georgia. So how does law enforcement react to that from, you, you talk about the age of the offense, but what about location of the offense, particularly when we start talking about going outside the boundaries of North Carolina? That does complicate things. Uh, and I've certainly dealt with cases that uh, had that aspect to them where, you know, maybe some abuse happened here and maybe it happened there. And, uh, you know, we're not, maybe we're really not sure where some of the abuse happened. And that really complicates things. And it can complicate things from a reporting requirement too. But I think that we should all be aware that every state has some sort of mandated child abuse reporting requirement. And uh, many states actually have a centralized number that you can call to report uh, suspected abuse or neglect. Uh, North Carolina doesn't have that, but we do have plenty of numbers for local uh, agencies, local DSS, local law enforcement, obviously, that we can report these to. And so one of the things that is, you know, the Internet may have brought many good and many bad things into our lives, but one thing that it has allowed us to do is have resources at the tips of our fingers where we can look and see, hey, 
who's a contact for me in this county, uh, in this other state that I don't know? And so normally what has happened in my experience with these investigations that may span a few states, um, you know, may be transient in some sort of way, is to start reaching out and working together to conduct these investigations. Okay, the family lived in your state from this year to this year. You know, can you ask around about interactions with them? Can you look and see if there were any reports made to DSS or to your agency or whatever, and then sort of track those down. A lot of times we have to go outside of our normal resources, normal boundaries, normal jurisdictions to conduct these investigations, but it's certainly worth it because these folks who move around a lot of times, again, that puts them in contact with more and more children and makes uh, more and more children vulnerable to being abused by this perpetrator. And so we want to make sure that we don't just say, hey, well, it didn't happen here, so it's not my problem, that we're not passing the buck, that we're ensuring that we're doing a full investigation from our end with whatever that we can track down that happened in our jurisdiction, and that we're also linking up, instead of kicking that can down the road to the other jurisdiction, we're instead reaching out and making contact with them and working together with them on this investigation. And so I think that's an important part of it as well, is to ensure that we continue to have these communications across jurisdictions to try to track down these offenders and and bring them to justice when we need to. Whitney, once again, our time has expired. And I just want to thank you on behalf of all the listeners for sharing this wealth of information as we spotlight Child Advocacy Month here in North Carolina. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Our podcast will continue with our fourth and final episode as we'll talk about some of the myths surrounding child abuse. NCJA 1014.